You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose thirty thousand mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for Yahweh your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of Yahweh. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people, and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city, and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about five thousand men, and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city, But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place, toward the Arabah, to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, 
some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of Yahweh that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of Yahweh had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 686 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, August 12th, 2023. That was a reading of Joshua chapter 8. If you'll remember, this is a time of war. It is a time of war. You've got wartime things happening. There's fighting. There's killing. There's tactics. There's strategy. There's feigned withdrawal, feigned retreat. It's exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. But remember, the previous chapter was Joshua chapter 7, obviously. Joshua 8 follows Joshua 7. The previous chapter was an attempt at taking the city of Ai And it didn't go so well. And part of the reason it didn't go so well is because the after party for having conquered Jericho featured a certain man named Aachen who had secreted, devoted things out of the city in direct disobedience to God. God said all of the 
city, everything in the city is to be destroyed, burn it with fire, with the exception of the gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze, that will be taken into the treasury of Yahweh. That belongs to God. Everything else is to be destroyed. Everyone else is to be put to the sword, except for Rahab, the prostitute, who helped the two spies who were sent in to spy out the land, especially Jericho. She helped them. She hid them. She gave them good counsel. She kept the secret. She sent the king's men who were pursuing them, who had heard that they had come into Jericho to spy it out. She sent them on a wild goose chase, lying to them effectively, but doing so in a righteous way, as is evident in the context of the passage. Here we have another example of deception. All warfare is deception is a famous maxim of Chinese philosopher, military strategist, genius, Sun Tzu. All warfare is deception, Sun Tzu says. Here we have an example of that practically, a feigned withdrawal after a actual defeat because God was not fighting for the men who had been sent against Ai the first time around. God was not fighting for them. Why? Because they disobeyed. They directly disobeyed him or they looked the other way as Achan directly disobeyed him. But here God gives Ai into the hands of Israel and tells Joshua, don't fear, don't be dismayed, take all the fighting men with you, arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And now I just want to pause for a moment because so often this business gets turned into a therapy session for us. We're very self-absorbed. We're very self-centered when we come to these kinds of texts and we think first and last about our feelings. That's the wrong way to go about it. Carl Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains something of the line of descent for this tendency in the modern era to not so much think, as Thomas Sowell would say, the problem isn't that little Johnny can't read. The problem is that he doesn't even know what thinking is. The problem isn't that he can't read, and it's not that he can't think. It's that he doesn't even know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. He feels a certain way. And actually, as I recently talked about when I covered the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis. This is the impetus for why Clive Staple Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man. He got his hands on a textbook for teaching schoolboys about literature. And this textbook taught schoolboys that when we say that a certain scene, a certain vista is beautiful or it's sublime or it's any other thing, we're not actually making a true statement. If we disagree about that, we're not actually debating truth. We're just talking about our feelings. That's all we're talking about. Well, very often when we come to texts like Joshua chapter 8, we don't get to talking about what the truth is. We get to talking about how we feel about the biblical text. Carl Truman would call this the emotivist tendency in his book, as something of a follow-on to Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Strange New World. He explains still further this idea of the social imaginary. The social imaginary is kind of like the zeitgeist. It's kind of like the spirit of the age, 
but it's distinct because it's more like a framework. It's more like a paradigm. The medieval paradigm was God created the heavens and the earth and he created us in his image and God rules and reigns just like he created and he designed and he ordered the universe. He also rules and reigns over the universe and we have the ability to choose. And so we should choose to honor God. And yes, we should study the order that he has created. We should study how he has ordered the universe. We should study the physical sciences. We should study what it is that we've been put into and ourselves as well and one another. We should study how we relate to each other and how we organize ourselves and our families and our communities and our other institutions. But we should study with the expectation that there is order and that there is such a thing as objective truth. And we should do that. We should do that studying so that we can show ourselves to be approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All truth is God's truth is a medieval paradigm. That's the social imaginary common to the medieval period. All truth is God's truth. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, not a God of confusion. God wants us to not be confused. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to live according to the truth. He wants us to act and operate and relate and speak in accordance with the truth. And so therefore, we start with theology. What's true about God, first and foremost? And then we work our way to what's true about everything he's created. And then we work to our own particular context in relation to God and in relation to the rest of the created order. And therefore, all other questions are subordinated to theology. This is why theology was referred to as the queen of the sciences in the medieval period. The paradigm has shifted dramatically in recent centuries, thanks in part to the Enlightenment and secular humanism having seized the day, carpe that diem. But the new paradigm has a lot more in common with I think, therefore I am, which is to say starting with myself. First, I know me. Not first I know God, but first I know me. And what does that mean? That means I start with examining my own thoughts, my own feelings. I start with introspection. And maybe I don't ever even progress from that because it's a never-ending supply of material as I am bringing in data, fresh data from the world around me as I'm having experiences or I'm interacting with other people or I'm interacting with what God has created or I'm interacting with God. I'm going to keep on feeling new things. I'll keep on having new thoughts. And that's backwards, actually. And you might be surprised for me to say that, given that I say I want to talk about everything. But really, the rest of the story is God is honored when we think rightly about everything to the best of our abilities. The Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And so to love the Lord your God with all your mind informs how you love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul. That is your person. 
For you to love the Lord your God with all your mind requires that you take every thought captive to what God has said and who God is, what God has called you to. This idea of God calling you to anything is oppressive inherently according to the current social imaginary. It's an inherently oppressive and inhuman thing if God would tell you, do such and such. But because we start from the premise of how do I feel about it and work backwards, we want to put God in the position of the defendant. How dare you infringe on my liberties? How dare you interrupt my pleasure-seeking, my fulfillment of what I perceive to be self-actualization? And yet the irony, the bitter irony, the tragedy of it all is we become futile in our thinking when our definition of self-actualization or reaching our full potential is inwardly focused first, introspective first. How do I feel? What do I think? What do I want? It's great for you to have thoughts and feelings and desires and ambitions and to be honest, right? Be honest. Yes, absolutely. But if the overriding priority is I want to feel good, then you're an unreasoning animal. You're a brute beast. You're a creature of instinct. Your destiny is to be caught and destroyed. And actually that gets back to Joshua chapter 8 here with the fall of Ai. You have God disciplining his people, correcting his people, because the paradigm has flipped in the person of Achan. Achan's first thought was not what has God commanded me, but what do I want? He's thinking, what could I do with all that money? What could I do with all that gold, all that silver, this fine clothing here rescued from the fire at Jericho? What could I do with that? He's got his imagination running wild about how good life can be. And so long as everyone else turns a blind eye to that, what they're essentially saying is that's also an equally valid option. That's an equally valid option and you're an autonomous individual or perhaps more precisely, your family unit is an autonomous family unit. So you do what you will. You do what you will and that's none of my business like Kermit the Frog with the sweet tea meme. That's none of my business. But then what does God respond with? He responds with an intervention, but in a passive way. Okay, I'm not going to fight for you guys. I'm not going to give you more victories because if I gave you more victories, then that would reinforce, that would affirm your indifference on this, which basically is communicating that it's all the same. It's all the same whether you obey me or you disobey me. And I've just spent quite a lot of time explaining to you that that's not true. That's not God's character. And so Aachen is singled out by lots. He and his children and his livestock are put to death and a big pile of stones is heaped up in the valley of Achor. And that pile of stones is to be something of a monument. It's an odd monument, you might say, but it's a monument. It's a reminder that to this day, as it says in verse 26, God's character has not changed. His way of relating to his people has not changed. He takes this very seriously. Achor had sinned. Yes, indeed, he confessed. But then what happened to him? What happened to his family? What happened to his livestock? What happened to his household effects? 
was no different than what God had ordered done to Jericho. And remember, this is the other piece of it. When God says he fights for them, he's going to give them the inheritance, that doesn't mean that he is now subservient to Israel. No, no. He provides for Israel. He protects Israel. He is also executing judgment on the nations. And Ai, the next in line after Jericho for destruction, Ai has sinned greatly. Here's another problem with our current social imaginary, our current paradigm. We assume that people are inherently good. And where has that gotten us? This assumption that people are inherently good, born inherently good, where has that gotten us? Defund the police in your neighborhood and find out how it goes. Take fathers out of the equation, especially with the raising of young boys. See how those young boys turn out as young men, whether they are inherently good or wicked and depraved. But then if you go back even farther, what really is... At root here is a disobedience on the rearing of children. And it's cumulative over the course of years and decades and generations. When fathers do not bring up their sons in particular, but their children generally in the fear and instruction of the Lord, a society degenerates and devolves into violence and every kind of perversion, every kind of deviance, every kind of skullduggery and wickedness and evil. And it's God here exercising his authority in perfect knowledge of the situation, perfect wisdom about it, in righteousness, saying, that's it. No more AI. AI is done for. But it's interesting too, right? Don't miss this. For all of our debates about what's wrong in American society today when we in the American church get to talking and wringing our hands and bemoaning. Don't miss that God basically pauses this campaign of conquest, having brought Israel over the Jordan, having given Jericho into their hands. He pauses the campaign for all intents and purposes to discipline Israel. He pauses the campaign because Otherwise, what's the point? What's the difference? If Israel is going to be permitted to be just like Jericho, just like AI right now, well, then they're the wrong instrument. They shouldn't be possessing this land any more than Jericho or AI. And that is to say, too, in the American church, when we look at broader American society, if we're no different, then why in the world would God allow us to be successful in our efforts at discipleship, our efforts at training Christians in the word, having healthy churches, having healthy families, having healthy businesses, securing our liberties. Why would God fight for us, so to speak? Why would God bless us if we're no different? If we just do whatever the people who are hostile to Christianity do, if we just say whatever they say, if we never differ in any meaningful way, except we sprinkle in a little Jesus talk here and there. God being the same yesterday, today, and forever means before he's going to give us any success at winning others over or doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God, making disciples of all nations, 
not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together as some do, raising godly offspring, before he's going to give us any success in any of those things, the first order of business will be that he will discipline us. And that's a good thing. That's a mercy, actually. Fathers discipline the children in whom they delight. Why? Because if you love your children, you're going to want them to be self-controlled and know when they can and should and ought to restrain themselves and also when they should just do the good that they ought to do anyways, even though it might be some hard work. It might not be the most pleasant. It might not be their favorite thing. Maybe it wouldn't be their first order of business if it were all up to them, but then this is the good thing and it pleases God. Fathers who love their children will set them up for success by teaching them to do the good thing, even if it's unpleasant, and teaching their children, their sons in particular, to refrain from doing the bad thing, even if it's very pleasant or appears to be. And the reason for this is because what appears at first to be very pleasant can, in the course of events, it can, in short order, actually prove to be a trap, almost like Israel pretending to retreat before AI and then turning around and the AI army turning around, seeing their city on fire. Whoa, wait a second. I have been tricked. I have been deceived. I have been set up. Why were the men of AI pursuing Joshua and the people of Israel? Because they thought, aha, we have them. Victory is ours. They turn around and they find that their city's on fire. And if you approach that business of all the men and the women of AI having been put to death with the presumption that they were inherently good, but that God is not inherently good, perfectly good, unalterably, unchangeably good, you will never understand any of this. You just won't. You just won't. But even if you do start with the premise, hey, yes, I believe that God is good. I just don't understand how this is good. I, I, I'm trying to recalibrate because this is so at odds with everything I've been told and I just, I don't understand. Understand this, that sin brings death. And what that means is sin doesn't just, when it's the really bad sins that you think of lead to death, sin leads to more sin. And little sins, unrepented of, at a certain point, for those who are doing those sins just because they enjoy the thrill of the sinful behavior, the transgressive quality. The sins get boring and then give way to new sins, more clever ways to be a devil. And this is actually, by the way, another quote I would throw out from C.S. Lewis here is, education without values as useless as is seems rather to make man a more clever devil. Or similarly, as Theodore Roosevelt once said, to educate a person in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. So then we have the problem. We have the conundrum of these people having perhaps gotten an education enough to build a city and have a civilization, maybe being educated in mind. Maybe they were clever people. Who knows? They were immoral people. They were ungodly people. They became increasingly devilish and wicked. And then we also know from God's warning about practices not to engage in because those practices are why he's driving out the nations before Israel in Canaan. Among those is the offering of their children in the fire to Moloch. 
So they don't just act like devils. They eventually, at a certain point, out and out worship the devils. They don't just worship the devils, though. They, at a certain point, kill their children, their sons and their daughters. They kill, they murder their own children, and then burn their children in fire as part of a worship service to demon gods. Now, I throw that out there, and it's not explicitly brought up. It's not repeated right here in this passage, but you should be thinking about it. You should be thinking, okay, what could this people have done that God says completely and totally wipe them out? What was so bad? What was so wicked? What was so sinful about this people? Well, that would be pretty wicked if this was such a common thing that it's just men and women, by the way. I'll note that in verse 25 of chapter 8 here, it says, And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. It's possible that there were children and the children were not counted. That's possible. Maybe. Here's a sobering thought. What if there were no children? Well, just imagine with me for a moment. What if you walked into a city and you're just visiting? You're maybe spying out the city. You're the spies sent out to see, hey, who lives in this land? And you come into the city and there are literally no children. Zero. Zipzilch nada. And actually, it's not all that uncommon. Let's say you go to Denver, for instance. You go into downtown Denver. You walk around middle of the day. Are there children there? Will you typically see children? You typically won't. You might see homeless vagrants. You might see people who are clearly not well, probably because of drugs and alcohol, sleeping on the streets, tents set up right now in the streets of Denver. You'll also see shiny new cars clogging the streets. You'll see people in suits and other business attire walking to the office building, walking back to their car, walking to get some food. You might not see so many children, but you might just possibly have a city of 12,000 people, maybe, who have aborted all of their children. And when I say aborted all their children, what I mean is murdered all their children. And when I say murdered all their children, I mean at any age, whatever age. And when I say murdered their children, I mean they might have murdered their children and then offered their children in a religious ritual, a cultic ritual, worshiping a demon god. And just think to yourself, if that's a common practice in a city like AI, that there are no children, children are produced perhaps, or they have found ways to prevent having kids in the first place, but then sometimes, you know, sometimes one gets through and then what do you do? Well, you offer that child to Moloch, perhaps. You offer that child to Moloch, you burn it, him, her, in the fire, and you go back to partying, carousing doing whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like, self-actualizing, whatever they call it. And now, right now, think about if that's the common culture, if that's become the dominant paradigm, the dominant social imaginary, that's become the dominant religious outlook, the dominant worldview, the dominant practice in this land. We try not to have children, but then every now and then we have children. And then what do we do? We abort them. Or if we don't abort them, We raise them up believing that this is all correct. This is all very good. We enlist them in our wicked practices. We encourage them to. We affirm that. We 
actually maybe even force them to do that. We manipulate or bully them by turn, whichever will do the trick until they all likewise are as degenerate and wicked and disrespectful and dishonorable and evil as the adults. If there are children, imagine that that's the dominant culture. And then imagine you're anybody with any sense of right and wrong still holding on. Aren't you horrified by that? Aren't you repulsed by that? Doesn't that disgust you? Doesn't that terrify you? Isn't that horrific? And don't you maybe find somewhere else to live? Maybe don't you move somewhere else if you have a shred of decency anymore? When you know that's the reputation, don't you just avoid that city? Stay away, stay clear. Ah, that's not the kind of place I want to live. That's no place to raise a family, as they say. And now think, right? Now think to yourself about God bringing a people he has claimed for his inheritance, his nation, into this land and saying, your time's up to cities like Ai. And it's not just the men, by the way. It's the men and the women. And this is not so uncommon. I mean, just think again about where we're going in America culturally because of the socialists and the Marxists and the radical left, because the progressives have turned the page and now they're transgressives. Think about all this talk of women as well having to sign up for selective service. The women also in times of war are being told, yep, you might have to go off to fight in future wars against China, for instance, for example, or we'll see how it goes with Russia and Iran. You might have to go fight. We might need you. But then also keep in mind statements from our own government officials, Jack Kirby, for instance, at the Pentagon, claiming that military families, you know, women in uniform, for instance, women who are in the military and also the wives of men who are in the military, they need access to abortion. We're going to make sure they have access to abortion. We owe them that. And now imagine an army that is the men and the women coming out of the city, picking up arms to fight against Israel because they're going to defend their way of life. Yeah, but their way of life is evil through and through. And now just think for a moment. Think if this were guns and bullets and grenades and not swords and spears and bows and arrows. If you're on a battlefield thousands of years ago and your enemy is sending women in combat out against you, what do you do? Well, my mother taught me you never hit a girl, so I guess I'll just die now. No, no way. No, particularly if God has said, none will be left alive, men and women. So we have this chivalrous ideal, which has come down to us somehow somewhat intact from the medieval period. But we see that also being purged as women are being told you're going to have to sign up for selective service. That's a repudiation of the whole idea of chivalry. But that's not surprising because it's a package deal. You embrace Christian morals, Christian norms, or you completely reject them. You really shouldn't be cherry picking. But this idea in the Middle Ages was don't go harming the women and the children and the old people who are not the fighting men. If it's Christians fighting, unless God has given the explicit express command to leave none alive, spare the women and the children. And that's actually biblical. That's actually part of the law 
of God with regards to making war. You will come against a city. That's not one of these that I say totally, utterly destroy, annihilate, wipe them off the face of the earth. If it's a different city, but still an enemy, come up to the city walls, offer them terms, offer them the chance to surrender. If they won't surrender, make war. You still need to have some self-control, some restraint, some discipline in your making of war against them, but make war. And if you take the city, when you take the city, actually is the word that's used, when, not if, when God gives that city into your hands, if they wouldn't make peace, if they wouldn't surrender, when you take the city, put all the men to the sword and the women and the children will be your property. But what you've got to understand about that is here again, we come to that paradigm and we're offended and we feel that that's not right, that's not fair, that doesn't fit with the paradigm of today. We feel like that's not right, that's not good of God. And yet, where is our idea of fairness coming from? Where's our idea of what's good and right coming from? You know, if you trace it back and you go back to Rousseau's idea, Jean-Jacques Rousseau talking about man being in a state of nature, we need to go back to a state of nature. If you couple that with Darwin's ideas on how the fit survive, the fittest survive and reproduce after themselves, there really is no ground to stand on as far as the law of the jungle for opposing what God is prescribing there. When we're talking about animals, what's typical? A more dominant male comes into an area. The resident male perhaps has the ability to further the species until that more dominant male comes into the area. The more dominant male and the resident male, they have some posturing back and forth, sizing each other up. And if the male who is resident, who is less dominant, who is less strong, fit, capable, healthy, wants to fight, they fight. And if in the fighting he doesn't run, he dies. And if after he dies, the new dominant male mates with the females in that area, do we go in wagging our finger and saying, oh, but that's not right, right? That's wrong. Well, maybe it is wrong after a fashion because there was no death and dying and violence originally in the beginning, but then we introduced death and dying. Remember that we're the ones who introduced death into the world for the animals and for ourselves. Everything that has the breath of life in it, which is to say everything that breathes, we introduced death into the world by the sin of Adam. Adam took fruit that wasn't his. It was God's. It was all God's, but then God had given every tree's fruit except for that one. And then his wife takes some and he listens to his wife instead of listening to God. And that was the original OG upending of the created order. God had told Adam, Adam was supposed to tell his wife, he was supposed to look out for her and protect her, guard her heart. He should have intervened. He should have answered the serpent when the serpent asked, hath God said, did God really say he should have answered the serpent and said, yes, actually, as a matter of fact, he did. Come on, honey, let's go somewhere else. Or he should have just stood his ground and said, no, we're not doing that. And then the serpent would have fled. The serpent would have 
sauntered off. But then if we come at this text and we say, okay, God's got a good plan. He's got a good purpose. What might God's purpose be for saying, if you come against a city that's not one of these that I tell you to devote to total destruction, what might God's good purpose be for saying, you come against the city? If the men will surrender, okay, great, the whole city. They are now your laborers. They now work for you. You graft them into your domains. Their economic output becomes part of your broader economy. What does that do? It perpetuates the way of life of God's people, which is to say it perpetuates the way of life that God has prescribed if his people are obedient to him. If the men of the town won't surrender, okay, then it's war. So be it. So be it. It's war. And when we take the city, when God gives us the city, we are going to put all of you men to the sword. We're going to put you all to death. All of you fighting men, you could have surrendered. You didn't. Now we are going to put you to death. And then what, right? What is God's purpose for saying that the women and the children become the property, the possession of the fighting men? Again, that perpetuates the way of life of God's people, which is to say that perpetuates the way of life that God has commanded. When we're talking about wars and fighting between various civilizations, the class of civilizations, when we're talking about that, what we're really talking about is the clash of ways of life, the clash of ways of thinking about who is God, what is the purpose and nature of the universe, how has the universe been ordered, what is our place in the universe, what is our place in the created order, how should we relate to one another, how should we relate to creation, how should we relate to God. When civilizations clash, it really, at the end of the day, comes down to a conflict of visions and conflicting ways of life. Who will win gets to decide what way of life is perpetuated moving forward, is propagated moving forward. Some ways of life you might be able to do something with. You might be able to take certain aspects of. And the Romans were famous for this, for instance. For example, Romans would come into a area and make war and subjugate and conquer, and they would not uncommonly assimilate certain technologies, certain practices, certain attitudes, certain ways of doing things that they said, oh, that's better than what we do. Yeah, let's swap out the way we do that for the way they do that thing, because that that thing that they do is good. That's, that's pretty good stuff, actually. That's really good. Or if there were excellent men or women in some conquered, subjugated people, they would say, you know what? You're a person of quality. We want you helping to perpetuate our way of life. You work for us now. You're under new management. But when God says to devote some cities, some nations entirely to destruction, we're thinking from a very self-absorbed, self-centered, definitionally self-centered paradigm. And a lot of that is totally arbitrary, and it's actually godless at the core because we say, oh, it's not right that these ways of life would be destroyed or eliminated. And how do you know, right? How do you know more than God does about whether there was anything that should be redeemed in the way of life for the city of Ai, the way of life for the city of Jericho? How do you know whether there was anything redeemable at all? For that matter, too, and just think in strictly biological terms for a moment, about 
if a pandemic goes through a region. And think about if you find that some goods have been smuggled out of a city that recently came down with the plague, 60, 70, 80%, maybe even 100% of the people in that city just died of this plague. This pandemic wiped everybody out. And here is a wagon full of goods from that city headed your way. And you start looking at it and you're thinking, man, that looks like some good stuff. Wow. Ooh, I bet I could get a pretty good price for some of these things. I could use one of those. I don't have one of those. Oh man, that one's nicer than what I've got. But all the while, if you're wise, you're thinking also, yeah, but it's not a lot of good to us if we're all dead of the plague. It's probably contaminated. It's probably carrying the germs of the plague from the city that we just heard was wiped out. So maybe, maybe not, right? Maybe I won't actually. Maybe we should be very, very careful as we light that wagon on fire and stay well clear until every last little bit of it has burned up. That's what we're dealing with here. And not just with material effects, we're dealing with a way of life that holistically is tainted with evil. But at the root, at the very, very core of how we might read these passages differently, understand them differently, at the very, very root is the question of whether we trust that God knows better than we do, whether he is more righteous than we are, whether he has more authority than we do, whether he should be obeyed, whether he should be loved, whether he should be feared, or do we want to have a go at taking all of those titles, all of those attributes on ourselves and see how it goes. Switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about an Instagram video my wife sent me from an account called ilearn.in. And it's a graphic of a woman's body and how female organs shift during pregnancy. The brief write-up from four weeks ago reads as follows. During pregnancy, a woman's body undergoes various changes to accommodate the growing fetus and prepare for childbirth. These changes occur due to hormonal fluctuations and the physical demands of pregnancy. In the graphic, you have a transparent time-lapse view of placenta and fetus, which by the way is just Latin for infant or child, but you have a transparent see-through image of a woman's body from about the waist up, and you can see the baby grow, and you can see all of the internal organs colorized, and as the baby and the uterus grow and take up more and more space inside of the woman, all of her other internal organs are displaced. They move up or they move back or they what have you. Even as the belly is distended and comes out, the breasts grow, the belly grows, the baby inside is growing, and all of the other internal organs are not shrinking, so to speak, but they are getting compressed. They're getting moved. And this short little graphic is fascinating, actually. It's it's a fascinating thought that this is how everybody comes into the world. Every mother has this happen to her over the course of at least nine months if she has one child. If she has multiple children, this will happen to her 
however many times, just multiply that roughly nine-month period times the number of children. And this is how God designed the woman's body to be able to have children, bear children, grow a new human life, give birth. And that's how we all got here. Except for Adam and Eve, that's how we all got here. There was a Chuck Norris meme my wife showed me last night. It's Chuck Norris with a cowboy hat and a trench coat, blue jeans, and cowboy boots, standing there looking epic, like the epic action movie star. And the caption reads, I once was a man trapped in a woman's body and then I was born. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's true that all of us who have been born, we were not trapped per se, but we were grown in our mother's bodies. And this is what happened to our mothers and our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and so on and so forth for thousands of years, all the way back to Eve. And the reason I bring this up is not just because it's interesting in an abstract sense, but because of the comment section for this video. There are so many ugly, caustic, bitter, mean, selfish comments from women who see this and they say, I'm never going to have children. That's horrifying. Or they say, how dare Republican lawmakers force women to be pregnant when this is what happens to a woman? This is violence against women. This is evil. This is, this is what we think is evil, that women get pregnant. We don't ever want to be pregnant. How dare Republican lawmakers say that abortion is illegal, forcing us to be pregnant against our will. I commented and I said, as follows, to those who've expressed a total disgust by this, do you wonder at a certain point what kind of education you really received that you were so conditioned to be repulsed by the way God designed our bodies to accommodate marriage and procreation? Maybe the unnatural and grotesque thing here isn't this video, but your cultivated horror at motherhood in principle. That's something to consider. And oh, by the way, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing for me as someone who was homeschooled growing up. My kids are being homeschooled. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to. Not everybody is able to. But as someone who's been hearing for my whole life long about graphic sex education in the public schools, to read through the comment section, you would think this is the first time a lot of these young women who are commenting have ever seen what actually happens with the woman's body during pregnancy. You would think this is news to them. Like maybe the graphic sex education wasn't actually with a view to them learning the reproductive process, learning the reproductive system of human beings. You would think that maybe just, maybe the whole idea of the graphic sex education was to get kids to have sex, to molest them, to liberate them, the Rousseauian radical left, progressive, transgressive types would say, to liberate them, but really not liberate them. Really more rightly, to cause them to stumble, to cause them to transgress. And so what's interesting is, you know, I commented and I said, if we're talking about a woman being forced into pregnancy, I think what you're describing is rape. I'm certainly not in favor of rape, but historically, rape has been punished by dealing with the rapist. When you mix that topic in with abortion being made illegal, 
you're suggesting that rape should be punished by murdering this innocent child. This innocent child didn't rape you. This innocent child isn't forcing you to be pregnant. You really have been brainwashed. You really have not been liberated. You've been enslaved by a godless and inhuman and anti-human, actually, way of thinking about marriage, sex, having children, raising children. But that is to say, too, my bringing up this is how God designed our bodies, he designed our bodies, that quickly turned into don't bring God into this. God, one woman commented, God forced a 13-year-old child into pregnancy. No, no, no. God's not good. And now just think with me for a moment about that mindset and whether that mindset is with us as well when we start from the position of how do I feel about these things? And we should be reasonable. We should think about these things. We should be honest about how we feel about these things. But we also need to put in the right order how important it is that we feel a certain way. And we need to put that in the context of how do we decide what is true and what is good? Who decides what is true and what is good? Do we decide? Do our feelings decide? Or does God decide? At root here is a rejection of God's authority. To say God forced Mary, also, by the way, forced Mary to be pregnant is a very bad reading. And that's a wicked thing to say about God. The text doesn't support that, that God forced Mary, but God exercised his authority to say, you will carry the Christ child. You will carry Jesus, the Messiah. His name will be Jesus. You are going to be pregnant. You haven't known a man, but nothing is impossible with God. God is going to bless you with a child. And if she was 13 or 14 years old, the rank hypocrisy of our public schools teaching kids that young to experiment, to fool around, to have sex with each other if they want to, in universities and colleges for decades, they've been trying to rationalize, normalize relations between adults and children. The state of California just recently reduced penalties on pedophiles for cases where the minor may be willing. But then we have to recognize a lot of this is actually very arbitrary. So what age, for instance, should we permit young people to get married? If you say, well, I think if you lead with that, or I just feel like if you lead with that, okay, great. Noted. You have thoughts and you have feelings. Find an argument. Find an understanding. What did God say? Let's start with that. You know, I want to, I I, want to be careful with what I'm about to say, but really, truly, the Reformed crowd in all too many cases in the United States have made a reputation for themselves, at least among themselves, for being the people who are the most studious, the most serious about reading God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, exegeting, that is reading out of the text what the text says, not eisegeting, reading into the text what we want to have there. But my goodness, there is so much commentary from the Reformed crowd that is really just the current social imaginary being flattered in old-style these and thou language from hundreds of years ago. And so it has an appearance, it has a fashion of being in keeping with the mindset of the Reformers. 500 years of Protestant Reformation and counting. 
you being aware of names and dates and places doesn't mean you understand or even would agree with their paradigm. And therein lies the root of the problem. We have a lot of people employing old language and being rather puffed up with knowledge, but their paradigm isn't actually all that different from the broader world, the broader society. It's still the self-actualization thing. It's still starting with how do I feel? What do I think? What do I want? What's my opinion? But what's dangerous is whether we're talking the godless or whether we're talking those who think themselves very godly, when we start classifying what is imperative that we do and not do, what would be sinful, wicked, evil, or righteous, necessary, based on our feelings, our sensibilities, our opinions, and we don't correctly classify our opinions, our judgments as just that. What we've done is we've not actually elevated our opinions. I mean, maybe the naive, the foolish will go along with that. They'll be bluffed and blustered or else bullied out. But actually what we've done is we've brought the word of God very low in the estimation of not only ourselves, but everyone else. We've brought the authority of God very low in our own estimation. This comment section on this video is all emotivism. It's all flattery of the social imaginary, which says, man is the measure of all things. I think, therefore, I am. No, no, God spoke, therefore, I am. That was the previous social imaginary. We've gotten so far afield of that, that it's foreign to us to look at a video like this and say, wow, God designed our bodies magnificently. This is bizarre and wonderful and strange all at the same time, but good. It's good that we're made this way. If this is how God made us, and that's another incongruity, by the way, with the radical left, that they would say God doesn't make mistakes. When they want to hijack Christianity to promote their sexual deviance, they'll say God doesn't make mistakes. I was born attracted to people of the same sex. God doesn't make mistakes. How dare you suggest that God made a mistake in my being born a homosexual? Ah, you weren't born a homosexual. You were born with God's original design plus also a sinful nature in a fallen world surrounded by other people with a sinful nature. Don't forget that. Somebody says, I was born with gender dysphoria or I was born a boy physically, but I feel like I'm actually a girl. God made me this way. How dare you suggest that God made a mistake? Why does that come so easily and get such a pass? But if I say, you know, the part where God didn't make a mistake is the original design, which we don't have to just wonder about. It says he made them male and female in the beginning. And he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You can't be fruitful and multiply with a same-sex relationship. And oh, by the way, lest you think, well, I'm not trying to be fruitful and multiply in that case. I'm just trying to have fun with somebody I like, somebody I enjoy. I say, yes, but God said that was an abomination to him. He said, don't do it. So here again, we're right back to who is the authority? Is your opinion the authority? Or is God the authority? Is God's word, is his command the authority? Is God the authority? With the time we have left, though, let's talk about Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning by Doug Wilson. I just finished this book this morning. I started it yesterday, and it was most excellent. It really was an excellent, excellent read. The Goodreads summary for this book published 
1991, reads as follows. Public education in America has run into hard times. Even many within the system admit that it is failing. While many factors contribute, Doug Wilson lays much blame on the idea that education can take place in a moral vacuum. It is not possible for education to be non-religious, deliberately excluding the basic questions about life. All education builds on the foundation of someone's worldview. Education deals with fundamental questions that require religious answers. Learning to read and write is simply the process of acquiring the tools to ask and answer such questions. A second reason for the failure of public schools, Wilson feels, is modern teaching methods. He argues for a return to a classical education, firm discipline, and the requirement of hard work. Often, educational reforms create new problems that must be solved down the road. This book presents alternatives that have proved workable in experience. Quote, good at diagnosing our educational afflictions, Doug Wilson is still better at finding remedies. His Logos School provides a model, a practical design for the restoration in the curriculum of Christian humanism as contrasted with what Christopher Dawson called secular humanism, end quote, Russell Kirk. So about this, right? 1991, I was all of five years old. I was five years old when this book was first published. I have not read Doug Wilson on education prior to this. I've been listening to him off and on for years now. I enjoy Canon Plus. They've got some really good content. I've listened to his podcast. I've read his blog and May blog write-ups. I like his podcasting. I enjoy Doug Wilson. This book is so encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me because here we have the language for explaining why it is that Christians not just can be critical of the public education system, must be. And when I say that, what I am speaking from is the experience of being homeschooled, homeschooling our own kids, having written, and this is why we homeschool, discussing this with friends and family and strangers. When you start to criticize the public schools, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors have a very short-sighted understanding of what's flawed, what's wrong, what's broken with American public education. They think that round about the time Barack Obama became president, that's when it really started to get bad. As Doug Wilson points out, in 1991, those who wanted at that time to go back to the way the public schools were in 1950 were doing the exact same thing. Right now, some 32 years later, there's a lot of Christians in America, a lot of pastors even, who want to go back to the way that the public schools were, let's say, in the 1990s. In the 1990s, their equivalents wanted to go back to the way the public schools were in the 1950s. Give it another 30 years, if we have 30 years as a country at this rate, give it another 30 years, and you can be sure the same types of mainstream evangelical Christian pastors, thinkers, writers, parents will be saying, oh, I wish we could go back to the way that the public schools were in the 2020s. All the while, what's broken here is the premise. The premise on which American public schools as we know them were founded 
is hostile to biblical parenting and education. Christian education is not at all what the progressives had in mind. What they had in mind was let's progress like the Fabian socialists in the UK. Let's progress to utopia, but then all the while, let's forget that utopia is literally Latin for no place, nowhere. Let's try to get there. Let's imagine it is a place and we'll see where we end up when we adhere to the ideas of Plato in the Republic, Frederick the Great in Prussia, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Marx also was a big-time proponent of public schooling. The progressives had much, much, much more in common with the ideas and thinking on education that Marx espoused and Engels espoused than they did with anything resembling biblical truth, Christian teaching, orthodoxy or orthopraxy as established over the preceding 2,000 years. When Doug Wilson writes about this, just keep in mind, in the early 1990s, I was all of five years old. It wouldn't be too long before I myself was homeschooled. My parents tried to send me to a Christian school for kindergarten, and there was very little supervision. It was not a great option. The kids were undisciplined and misbehaving, and I got pulled out. My mom homeschooled me the second half of my kindergarten year. And then my parents tried to send me to another Christian school. And that second Christian school was also a bad option because the teacher for my combined first and second grade class was going through a messy divorce and was having problems with her teenage son. And so she just did not like the boys in the class. She had it out for us and she was harsh and severe and unpleasant and not a good godly woman in the way that she approached her duties. And so my mother pulled me out of that school as well. And I was homeschooled from the second half of first grade all the way up until my senior year of high school. And I recall a lot of ostracism that my parents faced because they were homeschooling from Christians, from Christians who said, what you're doing is ungodly. We need to send our kids into the public schools so our kids can be missionaries in the public schools. And let me ask you, 30 years on, how's that working out for us? How's that doing? Not so good. Another important lesson, going back to Joshua chapter 8, with God giving Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he had promised. When God says to destroy Jericho or Ai, it's not that there is nothing of any material value in those cities. Achan proves that when he takes the gold and the silver, fabrics, he finds valuables in Jericho, which he then smuggles back to his tent, buries underneath the tent because they are valuable. But he's going to smuggle those into his tent. And what's the problem with that? God said to not to. God took it a lot more seriously than Achan did. And then the rest of Israel saying, well, that's none of our business, resulted in God giving the initial expedition against Ai, the next city after Jericho, giving that expedition over to defeat at the hands of Ai. God took it way more seriously than Israel was. And so also, education, I think after a fashion, 
is another one of those domains where you have to, at a certain point, say, there is nothing, there is nothing that should be smuggled out of the public schools in terms of their practices, their habits, their ways of teaching, their ways of relating to kids, their ways of relating to parents increasingly brazenly with contempt, with disdain, mockery, scorn, hostility, insults, those parents themselves having come up through the same public schools, apparently didn't get a good enough education from those same schools to have standing to be able to say, listen, this is not how kids are supposed to be taught. They know it instinctively because just like God made the woman's body to be able to carry a baby to term and then give birth to that baby, and that's how we get here, that's how we fulfill the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Just like that, God has also equipped fathers to know instinctively when their children are in harm's way. And what we have is a system that would tell fathers, you are not needed here. In fact, you're the danger. You're not the one who's supposed to be protecting your child. You're the danger. You're the greatest danger. You and the patriarchy and an imposition of discipline. And why does this system regard fathers in that way? Because ultimately this system is built on a anti-God philosophy, one that wanted to purge Christian morality, Christian thought from society. And only then, when that was accomplished, would we be truly liberated. That's satanic. Now, are Christians perfect? Are we perfect? No, but that's not the point. That's never been the point. If reform is needed, it's needed in the church. Save your reform efforts for the church, for the Christian family, for the way that the Christian approaches politics or owning and operating a business. Save your reform efforts for the church. But you had Christians back in 1991 when Doug Wilson wrote Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, bragging about how they had complained to their local public school about witches and goblins and ghosts and other creepy characters decorating the halls for Halloween. And see, Christians can have an influence. Christians need to stay in the public schools. Really? Really. So your child is not allowed to read a Bible in the public school and is not allowed to pray in the public school. And you want us to be glad that one day a year, we don't have a cardboard cutout of a witch on the wall in the hallways. Really? Wow. (laughs) You are easily satisfied, but then that's just it, right? That is just it. It was all about we ourselves being satisfied, serving ourselves, pleasing ourselves, not conserving what God has entrusted to us, what previous generations of Christians in the West have built up and passed down to us. No, 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 no. Reading this book, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, is very helpful, I think, in another way, because one of the anecdotes Doug Wilson provides has to do with his teaching a class and one of the students raising his hand to say, well, wait a second, we just learned in a previous class about absolutes, absolute truth claims, universals. You're making a universal claim right now, aren't you? Shouldn't we be wary of you making a universal claim right now? Aren't we just told to be wary of that when somebody makes a universal claim? And what did Doug Wilson say back to that kid? Hey, good job. 
Good job. That's a great point. Way to integrate what you're learning in one class into another class. You're getting understanding. Not just knowledge. We're not just telling you facts and trivia for you to repeat mindlessly in a servile fashion on test after test. Now, good job actually metabolizing the information and then doing something with it in this context, responding. Way to be. Way to be. But he points out, you know, we need to teach junior high and high school students, for instance, how to argue. They're naturally argumentative. We need to teach them how to argue well. Don't try and stop them from arguing. Don't tell them to shut up. Don't tell them, hey, that's enough out of you. Who do you think you are? No, no. Teach them to argue well and how to be reasonable. Give them the tools. That's what education should be for. And why, right? Why? So that they are able to honor God with whatever God has called them to. They need to be able to read in order to study, to show themselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That has to do with vocation. But then they need to be able to write as well so they can teach in turn and so they can cross-examine. If someone is saying something that seems to be correct, but it's not actually correct, something else would be more correct. They need to be able to write and speak, but they need to be able to reason. It's not enough to be able to write and speak. You have to have something to say. And unfortunately, this is another problem that I see in far too many of the Reformed churches in America. Far too many of the conservatives, so-called, are really just authoritarian, and they put on the fashion of centuries gone by. They're authoritarian, not when it comes to God's authority, but when it comes to their own arbitrary opinions. And they think that is being a conservative. That's not being a conservative. What are you conserving? (laughs) Particularly if the next generation coming up or even the current generation actually starts to apply these tools and they do get equipped for every good work and they start to question or discuss back and forth in a reasonable way. And you say, hey, you're not allowed to ask questions. God's not honored by that. Well, I suppose, I mean, if that's your opinion... Say no more. But see, this is why recovering the lost tools of learning is so important for the health of our families and our churches moving forward. We need to reform our way of handling family business or else we will never, ever, ever have a hope of being taken seriously, being credible when we try to reason with those who do not know God those who are innocent, but they're being led away to the slaughter. We won't be able to warn them and implore them. Hey, please come here. You're going down the wrong road. Let's get you out of there. For those who are hostile to God, overtly, outright, we won't be able to stand up in the day of adversity when they come for us. We won't be able to answer in a way that honors God if we don't recover the ability to question and to form an argument, and to be reasonable, and to let our reasonableness be evident to all. It's a broken model if we say, hundreds of years ago, the pastor was the most learned, and so if anybody in the congregation studies independently and they didn't go to seminary, we're going to shut that person up, we're going to shut them down, because we're being traditional, we're being conservative. No, you're not, actually. You're not conserving anything except your own status quo, except your own selfish ambition and vain conceit. On the other hand, it takes a profound 
humility to say, I think we've been doing this not as well as we could have been doing it. I think maybe we need to be open to correction. I think we need to double check our math and invite others who love the Lord, who love you to be a part of that. And then lest any of their correctives, so-called, would actually be erroneous and you end up worse than you were before, always go back to scripture, always go back to the word of God to say, okay, is that true, right? Is the thing you just said true? And if they won't tolerate that, well, then they don't have good motives, whoever they are. But if you won't tolerate that, then you don't have good motives, whoever you are. The flip side is, this is possible. This is a thing we can do. And it's not a thing that's burdensome. We should not be sad. We shouldn't groan. This is a thing we get to do. This is a privilege. It's a joy. It will bring so much blessing, so much pleasure to God, and it will do so much good for one another and for ourselves if we will do it. But speaking of, speaking of all of that, I really do have to run. It's a Saturday morning. As I said, my boys and I are going to resume a game of Ark Nova that we started last night. Our first full game of Ark Nova. We're going to try and finish it up this morning, get it packed away, and then I've got some other things I need to work on. Lauren and I have some laundry to catch up on from the week, plus I've got some training to do, plus I need to keep working on my presentation for tomorrow night on the topic of education. In closing, I would recommend this book. If you're a homeschooler, if you're thinking about homeschooling, even if you're just trying to figure out how can you have a better approach to education yourself for your own learning journey, check this book out. You won't be sorry you did, but as always, Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.